Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Look at how massive this place is. I mean, pictures do not do it justice. I've never been anywhere like this. I can hear and feel the hustle and bustle all around me, but I don't feel overwhelmed at all by the sound or the sensation. This is incredible. And all these iconic sights are here. There's the clock on the information stand, the giant windows, and of course the mural on the ceiling with all the zodiac signs. What is that black spot over there in the corner? Ah, that was left there when they did the renovation back in the 90s. It's to pay homage, you might say, to what the ceiling used to look like back in the day. Mainly because of cigarette smoke and nicotine, but also pollution from the trains and city. That's what used to hang over this grand hall before the $200 million renovation started in 1996. Wow, that is incredible. And incredibly disgusting. True. But also, what a time to be alive. The golden age of travel. To hop aboard one of the amazing lines that come here and go somewhere, anywhere in style. I mean, we can still do that. We can hop aboard one of these trains and head to Connecticut or or Long Island or upstate to the Finger Lakes. I do love that area. And our favorite winery is up there. Then what do you say? Next stop's Lake George? I'm on board if you are. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we're going to be discussing the classic musical on the 20th century. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone. Welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. All aboard! As we make our way from Chicago to New York City on today's episode of Stage Whisper, traveling via our show on the 20th century. A classic show which depicts theatrical folly and love affairs took audiences on that very journey eight times a week as it returned to the stage courtesy of Roundabout Theatre. But before we board this famous train, we must first purchase our tickets and lay the groundwork. Betty Comden and Adolph Green based the musical on three works. The 1934 Howard Hanks film, 20th Century. The original 1932 play of the same name by Ben Hecht and Charles MacArthur. And Hecht's and MacArthur's inspiration, Charles Bruce Milholland's unproduced play about his experiences working for theater producer David Belasco, Napoleon of Broadway. Cy Coleman, when asked to compose the score, initially refused. Quote, I didn't want to do 20s pastiche. There was too much of that around, he recalled. 
But when I realized the main characters had these larger-than-life personalities, I thought, ah, comic opera. Even the tika-tika-tika patter of a locomotive train has the rhythm of comic opera. Coleman agreed to write the music for the show and produced an operetta-style score reminiscent of the works of Sigmund Romberg and Rudolf Vermeil. Following a tryout at the Colonial Theater in Boston, the Broadway production opened on February 19, 1978 at the St. James Theater to mixed reviews. It ran for 11 previews and 449 performances. Directed by Hal Prince and choreographed by Larry Fuller, the cast starred John Cullum and Madeline Kahn. The show won Tony Awards for Best Score and Best Book, among others. After only nine weeks, Kahn departed the show. The New York Times reported that, quote, she said she was withdrawing because of damage to her vocal cords. She was replaced by understudy Judy Kay, who had been playing a small role and the critics were invited to return. According to the New York Times, quote, bang, boom, overnight Kay is a star. They praised her performance, Kay won a Theater World Award, and her theatrical career took off. She later starred in the U.S. tour opposite Rock Hudson. A London staging produced by Harold Fielding and starring Keith Mitchell as Oscar, Julian McKenzie as Lily, opened on March 19, 1980 at Her Majesty's Theatre and ran from 165 performances. The musical was nominated for the Olivier Award, Musical of the Year, and Mackenzie was nominated for Actress of the Year in a Musical. As part of an Actors Fund benefit, a one-night-only staged concert was held on September 26, 2005 at the New Amsterdam Theatre in New York. The production starred Marin Maisie as Lily, Douglas Sills as Oscar, Joanne Worley as Letitia, and Christopher Sieber as Bruce, with appearances by Jesse Tyler Ferguson as Max, Cheyenne Jackson as one of the Life is a Train porters, and Kathleen Turner as Imelda. The first London revival was staged at the Union Theatre, Southwark in December 2010 and January 2011. Howard Samuels played Oscar, and Rebecca Veer was Lily. The show is directed by Ryan McBride. For our show today, we will be focusing on the Roundabout Theatre Company 2015 revival. So let's introduce you to our design team. Book and lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Music by Cy Coleman. Additional lyrics by Amanda Green. Original direction by Hal Prince. Director Scott Ellis. Choreography by Warren Carlyle. Set design, David Rockwell. Costume design, William Ivy Long. Lighting design, Donald Holder. Sound design, John Weston. Hair and wig design, Paul Huntley. Makeup design, Anne Ford Coates. The show would roll into the American Airlines Theater on March 15, 2015, where it would play with at least one extension for 144 performances until closing on July 19, 2015. That season, the show would be nominated for five Tony Awards. So let's chug right along into our story. In 
In the early 1930s, egomaniacal impresario Oscar Jaffe is on the skids after four flops in a row. His latest show has abruptly closed in Chicago, leaving his angry cast and crew to whom he owes back salary. On the lam, Oscar secretly sends orders to Owen O'Malley and Oliver Webb, his press agent and business manager, to meet him on the 20th Century Limited to New York and to get tickets for drawing room A. On the LaSalle station platform, the passengers praise the wonders of a journey. Owen and Oliver, bursting into drawing room A, discover Congressman Grover Lockwood in a compromising position with his secretary, Anita. Oliver easily persuades them to abandon drawing room A. After making it on the departing train by climbing through a window, Oscar tells Owen and Oliver that he will soon regain his riches and success. He reveals the reason they had to get drawing room A. At the next stop, his former lover and protege, Lily Garland, formerly Mildred Plotka, now a temperamental film star, will board the train and will be staying next door in drawing room B. Oliver and Owen doubt that she will agree to be in Oscar's new play now that she's a movie star. Oscar insists that she will. In a flashback, Oscar remembers the time he auditioned spoiled actress Emilda Thornton for the leading role in a play. Oscar discovered that the gawky young accompanist, Mildred Plotka, could sing The Indian Maiden's Lament much better than Imelda, even finishing with an operatic cadenza. Oscar immediately decided to cast Mildred in the leading role as Veronique, a French street singer who wouldn't sleep with Otto von Bismarck and thus instigated the Franco-Prussian War. Mildred insisted that she did not want to be an actress, but Oscar convinced her to take the part, renaming her Lily Garland. The conductor warns the passengers in drawing room A that a lunatic is on board the train. He then announces, I have written a play, titled Life on a Train. Oscar sends the conductor away. At Englewood, Illinois, all the passengers, especially Oscar, are thrilled that they and Lily Garland will be on the train together. Lily's co-star and lover, Bruce Granite, fails to get off the train before it departs and must come along for the ride. Owen and Oliver stop by drawing room B and beg Lily to return, revealing that Oscar is so poor, his theater will be repossessed the next day. She replies, never. Bruce, suspicions aroused by Lily's passionate tirade, asks if she ever had a relationship with Oscar. She recites a long list of former lovers and insists that Oscar was never one of them. Still, in their separate drawing rooms, Oscar and Lily recall the relationship they once had. In the observation car, passengers complain that the religious lunatic has struck repent for the time is at hand stickers everywhere. The conductor assures them that they will catch the lunatic soon. This turns out to be Miss Letitia Primrose, who says it is her mission to warn sinners to repent. These stickers inspire Oscar with an idea for his new play. He will direct The Passion of Mary Magdalene, a role so good that Lily could not possibly refuse it. Bruce is equally confident that Lily will continue to act opposite him in Hollywood.
In their respective drawing rooms, each prepares to meet with Lily again and vows that she will be his. As Oliver and Owen prepare a press release for the new play, Letitia remarks that she sponsors creative endeavors. She declares that she is the founder and president of Primrose Restoria Pills, and she does good work with her extra capital. Lily enters drawing room B in a sexy negligee, and as Bruce and she begin playing, Oscar walks in. Oscar reveals his former relationship with Lily, and Bruce, outraged, walks out. Lily angrily recalls Oscar's jealousy and possessiveness in their former Svengali-like relationship. She is rich and successful without him, but Oscar retorts that she has lost her art by selling out to Hollywood. Lily tells Oscar she plans to sign with a successful producer, Max Jacobs, Oscar's former assistant stage manager. Oscar furiously returns to drawing room A, but he is mollified when Oliver and Owen introduce him to rich and religious Mrs. Primrose. Congressman Lockwood enters and announces, I have written a play titled Life on the Hog Market Committee. They send him out and Oscar and Mrs. Primrose shake hands as Bruce and Lily sit down to dinner in the next car. In an entre-act, four porters philosophically declare that life is like a train. Owen, Oliver, and Oscar congratulate themselves on obtaining Mrs. Primrose's check for $200,000. Lily's maid, Agnes, brings Oscar a message. Lily wants to see him immediately. Dr. Johnson detains him, however, declaring, I have written a play titled Life in a Metropolitan Hospital. Oscar ignores Dr. Johnson and enters drawing room B. Lily tells Oscar that she has decided to give him money to help him with his financial situation. Oscar proudly reveals Mrs. Primrose's check and describes the Mary Magdalene play to Lily. Lily is transfixed and begins acting the part, ending with Oscar's arms around her waist. She jolts back to reality and insists on meeting Mrs. Primrose. Owen and Oliver escort Lily to drawing room A, where they, Miss Primrose, and Oscar all attempt to persuade Lily to sign the contract. Bruce enters and tries to convince her not to sign. Lily resolves to not live in the past and refuses to sign, deciding to continue in the movies with Bruce. Oscar suggests a compromise. If Lily does the play, Mrs. Primrose can pay for the movie, too. Lily finds this very exciting and informally agrees. She insists on a few minutes alone before signing the contract. In Cleveland, Ohio, some officers have boarded the train. They are looking for Miss Primrose, who escaped from the Bezinger Clinic Mental Institution that morning. And they have come to take her back. The news soon spreads throughout the train. She's a nut. Oscar suddenly has no money again, and Lily, who has not yet signed the contract, angrily confronts him. Max Jacobs arrives with the new play, and Lily joyously greets him. She reads over the play, trying to envision herself as the decadent, glamorous title character, Babette. But her thoughts keep straying to Mary Magdalene. Nevertheless, she finally decides that she will do Max's play. Oscar meets Oliver and Owen in the observation car. He is carrying a gun and insists that he is going to end it all. 
he details the legacy he is leaving them and returns to drawing room A. Oliver and Owen are convinced he's just being dramatic, but then they hear gunshots. They find Mrs. Primrose holding the gun and Oscar mournfully staggering. She tried to take the gun away from him and it went off. Dr. Johnson examines Oscar and finds nothing wrong with him. Oscar says he will read Dr. Johnson's play if she pretends he really is wounded. Dr. Johnson agrees, and Owen tells Lily that Oscar is dying. Oscar begs her to sign the contract before he dies. She signs it, and they passionately sing to each other. Max Jacobs rushes in, and Oscar, very much alive, gleefully shows him the contract. Lily tells him to check the signature. She has signed it. Peter Rabbit! She and Oscar scream ridiculous insults at each other until they start laughing and fall into each other's arms. They reconcile, kissing passionately, resulting in an outraged Max leaving the room. The ensemble comes out, dressed in white, as Owen and Oliver throw petals, followed by Lily in a wedding dress and Oscar in a white tuxedo. The newlyweds embrace and join the company in one final proclamation that life is like a train. The The end. end. Now let's talk about the parts of the show that we liked or maybe thought went off the rails. See what I did there? Ha ha, ha ha, ha ha. Thanks for supporting your husband with his comedy career. That's all my time, folks. Always. Um, no, I thought this was a fun, a fun show. I I love this show. I was over the moon with this show. It was so much fun. Yeah, I mean, I just, the characters are larger than life, and it's very melodramatic, and I love it. It's a total love letter reminder of the Golden Era musical. Just fun and whimsy, like, yeah, there's no real lesson to be learned, you know? And oh, yeah. And there's, there's no, like, real, I don't want to say, like, there's no journey that goes on, but, like, you know, there's no, like, moral or anything. It's just one of the, like you said, it's melodramatic, it's just way over the top. Gadzooks characters, you know, it's just it's just fun. And what's funny is, you know, this is a show that was written in the seventies, but it totally screams of like the thirties. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. And like, I don't know, it just you you don't like any of the characters, but you do love them. There, yes, any sense. yes, like they're lovable. You don't want to be any of them per se, but you like enjoy watching their troubles. What is it? It's like the Smee, the lovable villain, or something like that. Yeah. Where, where they're the they're the lovable misguided people, you know. They're all. I mean, like you said, they're all terrible people. I mean, you know, even Lily Garland has has her faults, but you still you're like, oh, but at the end of the day, they really are good people, even if their their ways of showing it are not great. It was comedy gold, top to bottom. For me, this is one of the best musical revivals that I've seen roundabout do. To that point. Ah, uh, okay. I'm gonna put that. I gotta put the asterisk there out into the universe to that point. You know, I mean, the first thing that pops in my mind most recently is 1776, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but up to that point, I was like, wow, this well, is... And the the thing is, is Roundabout Theater gave you everything you wanted from a revival. It was glitzy. It was glamoury. You remembered was... everything about your experience from the word go, from the moment you walked in and sat down to the minute you left. Yes, especially because I wasn't excited about this show because I didn't know anything about it. And oh, same. I, and I did know I'm not a fan of Golden Era musicals. Yeah, well, see, this I will say this. You say that, 
But then, late, I mean, seriously, the last 10 years, the more Golden Era musicals we see, the more you're like, okay, well, that one was good. And I don't mean to, like, you know, point out the obvious, but where do you work? I'm just going to put that out there. Don't you work on a Golden Era musical? I think one of the things that I... <laughs> why I claim to not like Golden Era musicals is because from about the 50s through the 80s, I was not a fan of orchestration stylings. Well, that's not Golden Era musical, though. Golden Era musical is like the 30s to the late 50s. Okay, well... Hair and earlier is okay, Golden Okay, so Era. hair and, and before, yeah. I don't like the orchestration stylings. Okay. Well, I stand, I stand by my point. I mean, we have seen some Golden Era musicals that you were like, oh, that was good. And I was like, but it's Golden Era. But, I mean, to be fair, this is technically not a Golden Era musical, but... Harkens if, back. If you didn't era. know that, I mean, like, for instance, I didn't know it wasn't. I was just like, oh, yeah, there's a total Golden Era. And then, like, we did a research and I was like, I'm not smart. <laughs> it was total classic comedy from the olden days. Like, you were getting that comedy, both physical and the witty, um, which was so important, as well as you got that melodramatic and uh, performance and the timing. All of these things were just so important, and they thrived in this show. Well, and it had, like, the slapstick comedy um, rules in there. Yes, which I want to dive more into in the direction, because that, that, for me, is a director's vision. I also just wanted to point out that everything on top of the acting felt larger than life. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is a perfect time to jump into our little boxes. Mm. Oh my gosh! Okay, so little boxes. So the set. Let's yeah. Talk so about the set we we first, were talking about foundation. So we talked about we left off with larger than life. This mm-hmm. set was massive, and I mean massive and it's- so impressive. Let's start with. With okay, so we had mentioned that when you walk in, you remember everything about you know walking in, getting your seat. Opening, the opening thing, there was this curtain. And I want to know, I mean, I'm sure now, now that I know how like your set at Music Man is constructed, that the flats are tin. I'm guessing that this was also tin because you remember that it was metallic and it was that train and it was huge and it had all that art deco to it. And they had the words, the 20 on the 20th century on the train and even the, the, is it a headlight or whatever, the front light, you know? Mm-hmm. It was an actual light that came out into the audience, you know? And I was like, wait, this is where we're starting? It looked like a stamp, almost. Yeah, like it was, like, embossed. That's the word. Oh, my gosh. As I was writing my notes down, I couldn't think of that word. And then, of course, the the border around the stage was Art Deco as well, you know? Mm-hmm. It's so ornate and over the top throughout the show in the best way. Now, that Art Deco theme carried all the way through the show. And, I mean, obviously, we're in the 30s. Right. Well, and just the fact that we have this set that not only would let us appear into the train. Sorry. Peer into the train. But also... <laughs> I dream of Jeannie just beep, bop, boop, oh, we're in the train. <laughs> but also to allow us to see a fully realized train that moves and does like a three... like feels like it's moving 360 degrees on the stage. Right. Um, and so that's just quite a feat to be able to have. So 
I I made notes of, of of some of the sets. I just wanted to mention that like there were moments that were just over the top impressive. The Veronique set. They had this giant Arc de Triomphe um, in there, and I mean when I say giant, I mean huge. Like this was giving Lincoln Center a run for their money. Then the Chicago Terminal, which was the opening set, so that giant boss train pulled out, and we're at the Chicago Terminal. And because of the like pers- the perspective, like the angles of everything, the forced perspective, right? It looked enormous, and there were glass ceilings and the steam coming up. I mean, it, it. If you can look up a picture of it, it's so impressive. And then we had the state rooms on the train, like you were mentioning. And they were so detailed and ornate and in white. That was the other thing. White. And for some reason, that color just dictates class for some reason, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, just beautiful, ornate, white flowers, white decor everywhere on the train because we're traveling in style. The final scene when they arrive in New York, this giant train, the 20th century, in silver, right? Mm-hmm. And again, it's emblazoned with silver. And then you've got everybody in white in front of it. It's this gorgeous, gore- and it's again, it's huge, gorgeous set piece there. And and the honorable mention that I want to make is there's a great moment. When you mentioned the 360 we get, mm-hmm. uh, I think the only part we never get to see of the train is the rear. But we get to see the front because there's a moment where Mrs. Primrose is on the front of the train and it's facing out to us and she's like laughing and she puts on one of those repent the end is near on the front of the train. I think it's right before intermission or something. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. They didn't go small in any of these set pieces. Well, and the way that it moved felt like you were watching a movie because it like had clear scenes and shapes of the train that you would expect from a movie. Yes, 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 yes. It was moving and you were moving with it. Yes, that is a brilliant depiction. Now, speaking of movies, I want to go on to the costumes. Because yummy, yummy costumes. I mean, they did the 1920s, 30s beautifully. Is it swing skirts? No, these aren't swing skirts. Dang it, I never get those right. What are they? But they moved. These ones moved, yes. Yeah, so this... You know what I'm talking about. Yes, the... We would just say it's flowing. It had movement. Okay. It, it, that silhouette um, doesn't necessarily have a... I mean, we would call it a 1930s silhouette because it's not quite the drop waist of the of the 20s, but it's not quite to 1940s. It's not quite World War II yet. Exactly. So it lives in that in-between because okay. costumes and the way that we wear things are just like any political movement or anything else in society. It swings on a pendulum. And there's always these moments in history where we see this shift happening. Mm-hmm. And so 20s was dramatic. And we said, we go just drop the waist, <laughs> you know. But when we started moving to the 40s, it was a slow shift up to a more, fem- like, a more curvaceous feminine style rather than a sleek feminine style of the 20s. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, you should teach a class on all this. I, <laughs> I think I'm with the listeners where I am learning a lot. Well, now here, this is the interesting thing that I was pondering. So this is in the 30s, and it, I believe it's pre-war. Mm-hmm. So that also means that it's also during the Depression. Mm-hmm. But they don't look Depression so, thing. But but this looks very much old Hollywood, exactly. where we're depicting like everything's okay, which I loved. You well, know. the thing to remember about the 30s when it comes to clothing, particularly 
is you had distinctive classes. Yes. You had people who were affected by the Depression and people who benefited from the Depression. That's and true. like it or not, old Hollywood benefited oh, yeah. from the Depression. And so you have all these people who, are, who could afford to travel and everything. Of course they're going to be the bankers and the... Congressmen and, and the yeah, doctors and people and who the... have money and they're not going to dress like they didn't have money. And the biggest difference between what we view as clothing with money now and clothing with money then is you had quality pieces that were built to last always. Like everyone had quality pieces that were built to last. So people who didn't have money, they still had quality garments. So the fact that you know, they're more disheveled than those who have higher, who are richer than them. That's why they look disheveled is because they're more worn and you've had them for longer. Does they don't have sense? as many pieces to it's, alter through. So they wear through their... Exactly. Whereas now our quality of garment has gone so far down that you could have something that looks cheap, even though it's styled classy. And it's because of the fabric quality. They didn't necessarily have that issue back then. So the They way didn't have the throwaway fashion. It, exactly. And so it was in fabrics and in um, ability to constantly change clothing that you had that class distinction rather than how we have it now, which has just been, you know, completely ruined by fa- fast fashion. Fast but, fashion was the term. I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. But so that's why everything in this sh- in this show looks so glamorous and luxurious, and it's because they were pieces. I mean, obviously for the stage, they were high quality pieces built. But that's also why everyone in the show looks that way because they actually were high quality pieces. You know yeah. what I mean? And so that's that's kind of why you have that distinction and why everyone looked so nice in their stuff. Yeah. That and to give it that extra, you know, old Hollywood feel where everyone has nice things. Yes. And I mean, like I said, it, it did, it did, it screamed old Hollywood. Um, the train conductor's costumes were amazing, perfectly cut, and they were decked out, like just for the train. Mm-hmm. It was well, so uh, th- fun. This, I love old Porter's costumes because you basically had these companies that wanted to label themselves as a luxury brand. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that they did that was through the uniform of their employees. Right. It didn't just have the little logo on the patch on the breast. Yeah, it, they I required mean... it from head to toe. And the companies would have provided that head to toe um, to yep. maintain it because they the appearance of quality was more important than them saving money on employees buying their own uniforms. Right, exactly. Um, I loved Lily's outfits, the cute white dresses, the elegant but sexy ones as well. I love the Veronique uh, costume that was red, white, and blue dress. This this like bleeding color dress. But then you matched it with the torch, so she was like reminiscent of the Statue of Liberty, mm-hmm. which is great. And I also love the opening look when she was uh, Plotka, Mildred yeah. Plotka. I thought, you know, if Chris and Chenoweth looking like that character. Oh my God. Chris and Chenoweth well, is. It's a hard to make her not look pretty. And so they did a good job of giving her frumpy clothes and glasses. These glasses and the hair done, like everything. As for the men, the classic three piece suits looked fabulous. It just worked. A good three piece suit. It just looks great. 
And the rest of the cast is exactly what you'd expect to see in an old Hollywood film aboard a train. Beautiful cut dresses and suits and furs and these beautiful hats. You know, it was glorious. And then the wigs. I mean, I, I want to give the wigs a shout out because the wigs that exist in this show, those f- finger waves, right? Yes. They're, they're yes. And the classic rolled hair, too, in the front, mm-hmm. right? Well, here's, here's the thing to know about the late, great Paul Huntley is he had a way of doing hair that just, like, he looked at something, wiggled his fingers at it, and it was stunning. That man... That man could make any time period just appear out of thin air is what it seemed like. And so, you know, he gave you everything you could ever want out of this. He he understands the beauty of movement and, like, livable hair. I mean, Paul Huntley is, is an amazing designer, and I think that a lot of his work should be studied because of the things that he did to help showcase hair as a thing like he approached hair like a tailor approaches draping like it just it, it's beautiful and it's masterful and he gave us everything we could ever want from that luxurious glamour that is this time period yeah nothing looked wigged it did look natural i genuinely thought that was kristen chenowitz hair you know mm-hmm. i was like yeah that, that totally reads like her hair and they met the other thing i want to say is i noticed that the hair matched skin tone perfectly was one thing I noticed. It was the right shade of blonde for those that were blonde. Exactly. The right shade of brunette for those that were that's, brunette. That's why I thought that was Kristen Chenna was true hair. It's like she came out and I was, I mean, I knew Mildred was a, was a wig. Okay, let me back up. I knew everybody was in a wig, right? Mm-hmm. But I would believe when she was playing Lily Garland that that might be her real hair because just the shade matched perfectly with her skin tone and everything that looked nat- that natural. Because sometimes when you do get a character who's in a certain wig, there's only so much you can do with their skin tone and their eyes where it's like, that doesn't look entirely natural. Well, and blondes themselves are really hard to do on stage because blonde lets the most light pass through it, right? And So it can get red as white. Well, not just white, but it can absorb the lights that are being shown on it. So if you Oh, have, so like greens or reds or things yes, like that. Yes, so if you have a very distinguished lighting palette, it can affect the way that your blondes especially read, just because they're so susceptible to the way that light passes through it. I think that's a perfect segue into our lights, uh, which I thought were fantastic. And I don't remember a ton about them because that's how good they were. But the moments I do remember, I remember the Veronique. It stood up because like they had the lit outlines of the Arc de Triomphe and they had the red, white, and blue. So like you were saying about blondes being hard to lit, like, if they could have a light, they could have been uh, absorbing the red, white, and blue. So all of a sudden, Kristen could have had, you know, blue hair, uh-huh. which would have been interesting to see Marge Simpson marching down there with the <laughs> right. torch. Um, I remember the lights helping to give us motion of the train moving. They used that, again, like they did with Violet. Rather than using a projection, they used the lights to, you know, the create the motion, the shadow effect. Uh-huh. I also remember, like I said, that opening curtain making it look like metal, uh, maybe it was metal, with the light coming from the train, the front, and from the wind, uh, from the name on the 20th century, and the lighting reflecting that metallic look of bronze and silvers. Mm-hmm. And besides that, there was a lot of soft white lighting 
to give it that softer, reminiscent well, lighting. I don't like want to say sepia tone. No, but it's like you were watching a film. Exactly. And they went with the softer lighting, too, because this is a comedy. You don't need the harsher lighting with angles and things like that, like no. you would in a drama. Softer lighting for a comedy. And with the comedy, let's get into Scott Ellis and Hal Prince's direction as well. It was impeccable. All the elements were working in perfect harmony, and they were perfectly synced. Everybody was, t- all the elements were just talking and working in the same language, speaking together and creating this complete and whole world for us. Mm-hmm. That's what I love is, is, is from a moment, like I said, you arrived in the theater, there was an entire world created top to bottom and everything just fired on all of the cylinders. The comedy was just right. The overacting was just right. The pacing was just right. Well, and it had all the slapstick rules that we talked about earlier, how we followed rules of three, and we followed having those melodramatic pauses, and, you know, like, pratfalls, and, um, you know, that farce of, All like, the different characters and- that were needed to make Mm-hmm. Uh, a dr- a dramatic comedy or something. You right. had all of those people in place. The hidden comedic person and Mrs. Right. Primrose. Well, and, and the way to be able to, you know, do the the um, the farce of like the opening and closing of drawing room doors and yes. like, being having someone on the other side of the door and trying to hide people and then Mrs. Primrose being a nut going. Oh. Or you have Oscar right. Jaffe doing the the overactor dramatic. I close the door. You know that's exactly. his big like. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do. It. My favorite little repeat thing that I absolutely adored is, I have written a play, Mr. Jaffe. It's called Life on It. They all had the same title but changed for the profession. And they and what I loved is Oscar and Owen typically re- received it. And their reception of it got shorter and shorter and shorter. And I would like to see, the, I would have liked to seen the show multiple nights in a row because, like, the last one was just like, uh like they just slammed the door. Well, Does it change every night? Do they change that? Well, and the fact that you can have a director who lets your actors play with that moment is very important because that's how you keep the scenes fresh. You know, you don't want to be so rigid in your directing style that you're like, no, you have to do it this way every single time. Allowing your actors to play yes. is, is how you really get the audience to buy into what they're doing. Yes, and see, with this show, it had a pulse. It had breath to it. It really did feel like a train on the tracks. And as the show went on, it accelerated faster and faster and faster until you were like, oh my gosh, we're out of control. We're going to crash. What's going to happen? Oh my gosh, there's a gun. Until finally someone took control. And out of nowhere, Lily and Oscar come together and you're like, what? That's okay. That's fine. (laughs) And when you have comedic geniuses, it works. First of all, Kristen Chenoweth is a ham. She is such a ham. And see, she's not one of those people that like... I'm going to tell you dirty jokes. She's a ham and that like she can totally deliver with her voice and everything. These just crazy haha jokes create these personalities. So her wit as Mildred Plotka to Lily Garland and the fact that she can act as that like scorned lover to Peter Gallagher's overdramatic director. It worked perfectly. So that final scene where she's like, ha, check it. Look at the signature, you know. If I were Peter Gallagher, it would take everything in me not to laugh when you hear this high-pitched voice going, ha-ha, you know? This short, tiny little woman on stage literally jumps up and points and goes, ha-ha, you know? It, it's hilarious. 
that's the comedy that exists in this show. And everyone has to do their best to treat it like it's life or death. And yet it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And of course, we also have all these little, little scattered word plays like screwed again, left again in Chicago. So I thought that there was a clear vision of what the director wanted, and it most certainly came through. And pairing that, you got the choreography, which was stunning. It was a stunning choreography. Love the use of the tap, especially uh, the showcase of the conductors to represent the train. You know, uh, Act 2 when they came out and they were doing the, what, the acceleration of the train. That was a beautiful, that is one of my all-time favorite tap numbers I've ever seen in my entire They even life. showcased it at the Tonys, okay. if you remember. So that was really, really cool. I loved how they hammed up the showy big numbers. You know, it wasn't like, it's a big number on the 20th. They were like, we're going to just ham this up. You know, she's a nut, she's a nut. Um, and again, it incorporated these iconic and beautiful moments and movements from those old Hollywood screwball comedies. So it put that in, in the conversation with the show itself, mm-hmm. which I thought was really smart. Uh, what is it? Warren Carlyle. That was really smart of him to be like, I know it's a 70s musical, but look at where the show is set. Look what it's hearkening to. We need to borrow from some of these like Three Stooges, Abbott and Costello. Like, these screwball comedies, what are some of these big moves that we can maybe incorporate? These like the, the fruit hat dance and things like that, that we could uh, incorporate. Finally, I just want to touch on the music a little bit because, you know, we have been singing a lot of the songs throughout this. I love the music from this show. Yeah, it was very, I was very surprised how much I did enjoy the music. Yeah, I, this is the first Cy Coleman show I had seen and I became addicted. The score was enormous and soaring from the get-go. Like, it, it just starts off huge. It's not low and rumbling and building. It just starts off with a heralding trumpet. And there's lots of songs that get stuck in your head. I guarantee when we're done recording, you head to work, you're going to be totally singing along some of these songs. And I loved how silly and ridiculous the show is uh, along with the characters. And yet we have these incredible songs that are both challenging vocally and are moving like Veronique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our private world, we get this beautiful, you know, love ballad. But then we get these amazing pattern humor songs like Five Zeros or She's a Nut or I've Written a Play. You know, they, a perfect balance of that. It's just such a beautiful score all in all. And I really appreciate just how timeless this is, you know. The show has had several notable performers, including Mary Louise Wilson, Michael McGrath, Andy Carl, Peter Gallagher, and Kristen Chenoweth. So now let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. I would say for theatrical impact, another huge show for Cy Coleman, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, and another love letter uh, to the golden era of musical theater. I really think those are like the only two big impacts. Yeah, it just reminded us of our roots. Yeah, you know, I mean, other than that, this is just folly. This is just fun. Yeah. For societal impact, with the star power, it brought maybe a younger audience to the theater, particularly in Kristen Chenoweth, maybe, Andy Carl, to some extent. Um, And then it just reminded audiences of another time, of the golden age of travel, or maybe with that younger audience, introduced them to (laughs) the The golden golden age of travel. But again, this is just fun and folly, so I didn't think there was... There's not really 
really a big societal impact. Um, so I think that leads us to the question is, is the show still relevant? With the comedic styling and just pure joy in front of the show, I say absolutely yes to the show being relevant, both on and off Broadway, especially in the hands of someone like Roundabout Theater Company. When it's done right, it's done right. Well, and this show is just one of those for entertainment purposes, an escapist show where you're yes. just like, you know what? I just want to go and have fun. I want to get lost in a story. Yes. This one is really good for that. That being said, I would love to see more regional theaters do this and i would yes. love to see more community theaters do this yes i completely agree i've never seen a regional theater do right. this so. well, and there's so much that regional theaters could do with this like i think of some of the regional theaters uh sorry even some of the community theaters back home mm-hmm. and i'm like oh my gosh this is totally up their alley oh yes and it ends in a wedding yes like, that's everyone loves a wedding right like. <laughs> we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of getting to see the show once back in 2015. And if you haven't noticed already, we love the show. I mean, we had so much fun. I was just blown away by it all. It's our second show at the American Airlines Theater. It was incredible. Meeting the cast afterwards is amazing. Peter Gallagher, which is the first time we've met him. Andy Carl, Douglas McGrath. Michael McGrath, excuse me. Douglas McGrath. Rest in peace, different person. Um, but the kind of the, the the big one for us was meeting Kristen Chenoweth, uh, who stopped. And by the way, super tiny little lady, but so sweet. Super tiny little lady. Yeah. And she's so full of energy, and she was amazing. She signed our playbills. And there was a whole group from Broken Era, Oklahoma, behind mm-hmm. us. which she was, That's where she's from. But she had just hosted or co-hosted with Alan Cumming the Tony Awards. Mm-hmm. Two days before. So this is the first show we saw on that trip in 2015. Mm-hmm. So fresh off the Tony Awards. And we were like, you did wonderful. And she did. The, if you remember, 2014 Tony Awards were a little... Uh, it, the, the idea behind it was not fantastic. The producers of the 2014 Tony Awards tried something and it just didn't work. And that's fine. At least they tried. The 2015 Tony Awards, they nailed. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Kristen Chenoweth just went for it and she was fun. It was nice to be able to tell, like, you did great. And she was like, really? I was so nervous. I'm like, no, you were fantastic. So she was wonderful. The show was wonderful. And I'm so glad, again, I love meeting performers who they're wonderful on stage and they're wonderful in person. That just makes me like them even more. I hope you'll be able to catch On the 20th Century at a theater near you sometime soon. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass or by leaving a monthly tip in our tip jar. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, 
and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Quantum Jazz and Billy Murray. This episode was produced by Sarah Harley.